Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the David Birnbaum Connection. My guest today is Tyler Herchuk. Tyler is one of my oldest friends. Uh, we've known each other since we were 14, and he's always a pleasure to chat with. He has some very unique life experience, having moved to rural Alberta, moved to Australia, and then lived in rural Thailand teaching English. We talk about his different experiences, how he's you know, been able to be comfortable with himself to pave his own path, really, since I've known him. And then we get into a little bit of how that comfort translates to his presence in these podcasts and online. It's a great conversation, and I would really encourage you to check it out. This is the David Burmom Connection. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm here with Tyler. Thanks for joining me. No problem. Thanks for having me. So there's two things that come to mind that I want to talk to you about. And, you know, we can pick either one first. One is kind of your your life generally, because you took a very different track through life than, than I did. You know, leaving we went to high school together and then leaving high school. Um, and, you know, you've lived kind of in a bunch of different places. So I'm interested to just kind of learn more about that. So I, I guess we'll start there. So, you know. You've lived in Peace River, Alberta, population of I don't know how how many, but not a lot. Um, and then yeah, you've seven also, to ten thousand. Seven to ten thousand, and yeah. then you've also lived in Thailand, or was it Vietnam? I was in Thailand, Australia, Thailand. in between the two. But uh, oh wow, Thailand, yeah, yeah. So tell, you know, if you don't mind, start by telling me kind of like what let like how do you have so such courage i guess because it seems very daunting to me and it you always seem to just kind of matter of factly you know go about it like it wasn't a big deal so i'm i'm very interested to kind of hear about going to peace river and then you know the next stages after that yeah sure so essentially after high school um i wasn't 100 percent sure what i wanted to do slash uh, I didn't get into the program that I wanted, that I tried to get into. Yeah. So I took like a half victory lap, an extra semester to kind of sort sort things out and increase grades here and there. Um, but it was kind of a stupid application process, long story short. Mm. So I applied to a few more programs, realizing I wanted to do something with my voice. Uh, so I did radio broadcasting. I did that for two years at Humber. What? How did you know you wanted to do something with your voice? That's that seems fairly broad, I guess, right? Just uh, so. How, but how, yeah, so, I've, how did you come about knowing that or realizing that? Um, part of it was I realized, and from a lot of feedback from other people too, is that uh, I'm a relatively good storyteller, okay. and I yeah. can do you know X number of voices, accents, whatever, and I enjoy doing it. I enjoy talking, and I enjoy. Um, telling stories and doing different voices and i usually get good feedback mm-hmm. and i like making people laugh that's really important to me and i try to uh you know brighten people's days when i can yeah and so i figured you know the best thing to do with that i guess would get be getting into radio mm-hmm. and i wasn't entirely sold on the idea of radio as a medium it was just i would rather do something behind the mic than in front of a camera uh, so uh, why is that? Why, why are you camera shy? I wouldn't say that I'm camera shy, just more that I, maybe I don't a hundred percent love the live aspect of in front of a camera, but that okay. being said, a lot of it is pre-recorded or can be pre-recorded. Yeah. But, but 
in terms of that, it was either if I was doing radio, I could be um, writing, doing different voices for commercial stuff like that. If I was mm. doing TV, it would probably have ended up being more kind of news anchory. And I didn't really yeah. have any interest in doing news. Yeah. So if voice is what you care about most, it's kind of hard. There's not really many mediums where it's primary over video if video is included. Correct. Right. Yeah. And okay. so radio was kind of a stepping stone because now I, I'm a voice actor and I'm, I'm, you know, constantly auditioning and looking for work. But I really like that more than um, more than radio. I actually didn't yeah. even train to become, you know, an announcer. I trained to be a creative writer and a producer. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. Part of it was because I went to a teacher at school and I said, listen, I don't know that I want to be a jock. I would rather be a voice actor. And he straight up told me, he said, then don't take the announcing pathway because that trains you to be an announcer. Yeah. And if you go into voice acting afterwards, you'd probably have to unlearn some stuff. Mm -hmm. So he kind of pushed me in the direction of creative production. And that helped, I guess, me improve my creative muscles. And um, I was able to write characters and write script and copy that I could then use my voice on. Yeah. So what what so, did you take in school? Like what what program was that? It was radio a uh, radio broadcasting diploma. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so that was it. Sorry, go ahead. Before we jump to Peace River, it's kind of you know Peace River and some of the other stuff is around you just really being able to kind of follow what you were desiring, right? Which is a, an important skill that very few people have, right? You know, I just read you know one of many books that's like you know, do what you love, follow, like, you know, and, and it's such a novel idea to so many people to like pursue some obscure career path. But to you, it was like, this is what I want to do. So I'm going to do it. So I've always been impressed by that. But what, how did it come so naturally to you to kind of, you know, pick voice actor? It's, that's not a doctor. It's not a lawyer or, or like a business degree, right? How, how did you? Well, it's interesting a, yeah. because both of my parents and another, I think one or two other members of the family, the extended family, work in healthcare. So I grew up around, you know, dinner, dinner table conversations about what happened at the hospital, what happened at the clinic. And it never really interested me. Yeah. And I'm not a great, um, I guess the best term is, I, I didn't want to do university, sit in a lecture hall, um, with 400 other people, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so that whole aspect really turned me off of a lot of different professions. Yeah. But and so like, I'm also not at all like, I didn't enjoy it at all, but I still got like, I guess, coerced by my family into it. I, I wasn't strong enough at my, in myself to, to reject that, the, the, the traditional path that I thought I was supposed to go. So I'm like, did you ever, was it, did you ever think about that or like, have you ever reflected on how it was so, I mean, I don't know if it was easy for you, but it, it seemed easier for you than many others to, to go, a, to go on their own path, to, to follow a different route than the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Part of it was that my parents were so supportive. Um, they first tried to kind of push me into carpentry because I was pretty good at that Yeah. in, uh, in high school as, as you can attest yeah. to that to some degree. Um, Shout out to Mr. Weiss, giving me that <laughs> very unnecessary 99%. Yeah. Um, but 
that was the first push. And okay. my dad was trying to sell me on that saying, you know, there'll never not be a need for carpenters. Right. Yeah. And so he was trying to sell me on kind of the money aspect of you'll, you'll be, you know, relatively successful right off the gate. Mm-hmm. And so the time that I took kind of, I guess in my half victory lap, I, I took the time to say, listen, you know, I just like to, I like to talk. I, I like, like to, to talk. Yeah. Do creative writing, that kind of thing. So the biggest part though, was that my parents weren't pushing me into university. I remember okay. them explicitly saying college is so overlooked and it's underutilized. Yeah. Right. So back in the day, you know, my mom went to nursing college at Humber. So she was there X number of years ago and it was a two year program. She was in and out and, you know, she's been working in the field for X number of years. I'm not going to call her out. Yeah. Um, so her, her whole mindset was, you know, if you don't, why go to university and waste the money if you're not sure what you want to do? Yeah. And my sister also went to college and she's, you know, I think mm. she did she did two separate programs and she's successful, successfully employed. So mm-hmm. uh, it was more of a why bother keeping up with the Joneses when you can keep up with the Herchucks, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a good mindset. And so what, you know, I talked to a lot of my co-university graduates about the state of education and how so many of us are like, why did we go into this? So what, what, what's your view on like kind of how, how it was pushed and, and how it is now generally like the Um, general state of education of post-secondary education? Well, I think just the generally uh, post-secondary education in Canada mm-hmm. is it, very kind of, they push you right out of high school into university, and they almost they almost just say university is the best option. Oh, and then there's college too. Yeah. Right? And so both of us were in the gifted program, and mm-hmm. I don't even think anybody mentioned the possibility of college to any of us because oh, we were yeah. taking academic classes. Yeah. So they just assumed that we would be going into university into certain fields. And I think there's a severe lack of just post-secondary education in high schools. Right. And there's so many people that I mean, not that I know necessarily, but out in peace river, there was heaps of blue collar workers, electricians, oil field workers, what have you. And people from Southern Ontario were moving out there for a couple of years, making tons of money. Yeah. And then, would have the financial freedom to then do what they want, whether it was go back to school when they finally realized what they wanted to do for a career mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. So I think that now people are becoming a little bit more aware with social media, more people are sharing their stories. And yep. I think kids coming out of high school are becoming a little bit more familiar with their options. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it makes so much sense that that path is, I mean, I think be- I think it's better, but it makes more sense to me than, you know, trying to, one, tell a 18-year-old kid that they should predict what they want to do for the rest of their life by getting a degree in it. Um, but also, like, yeah, I really felt that, you know, the if I wasn't going to university, I must be an idiot. That's the way I felt, right? Um, and so I really pushed, like, I felt pressured uh, from a, lo- a bunch of different areas to 
to go to university, even though I had I, I just wanted to work for my dad. I wanted to finish high school and work for my dad and, and start learning how to live in the world. Right. Um, and so it makes sense that people do that. And then, you know, you're a bit older, you have some you have money and you have some knowledge other than just school um, to kind of figure out what you want to do from there. Right. And I'm probably one of the few gifties from our class that didn't go to university. Probably, yeah. If I think about it, I mean, I'm not in touch with anybody, but I could, oof, yeah, I would say the majority of them did. Yeah. And whether that was their family or, you know, peer pressure or societal pressure saying, listen, you're relatively smart. You shouldn't be going to college. You have to go to university. And, it's interesting because I'm getting a lot of perspective on now I have friends of a variety of age ranges. I'm 26. I have friends who are my age. I have friends who are two, three, four years younger because I do, you know, different pickup sports and whatever mm. outside of, of work. And it's interesting to see people that are in different stages of post-secondary education just coming out of it. You know, I have some friends who are accountants and they're working at this time of the year, 70, 80 hours a week, they're getting yeah. per hour less than minimum wage and they hate it. And yeah. these are co-ops they're doing. They haven't even started their, <laughs> you know, their careers necessarily. Yeah. And so part of me moving away to Peace River really kind of kickstarted me on this, this whole travel aspect. Look at the world, see the world, because we're in such a small bubble in Southern Ontario. It may seem like a big bubble, but it's surprisingly small with the different mindsets. Yeah. Um, and there isn't enough perspective, I think. Looking at the Europeans that I bumped into in Southeast Asia and in Australia, you know, they were very young, 18, 19-year-old girls traveling by themselves because they had that gap year between high school and college or university. So they had the opportunity to explore the world and explore their options. Yeah. I'm definitely going to discourage my kids from going directly from high school into any post-secondary I think I I mean I I enjoy the life I've had but I do see, see that there would have been huge value in the the year I took or I took eight months between university and work and the just the growth and experience I got then if I would have had that at the age of 18 19 before I went into university I think it would have changed my life significantly and, and the I mean, I, I enjoy where I am at now, but I think I would have been able to get here much, much sooner. Um, and I know there's some countries that like heavily encourage, um, you know, that sort of gap year. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that you should discourage your kids from doing it. Just in, educate and yeah. inform them of their options. Yeah. I Okay. Yeah, I guess that's a that is definitely a better approach than discouragement, um, but yeah. definitely not pushing, you know, the the idea that they have to have to go um so so obviously you know you've had this you know i'd say grounded inner strength to kind of like assess yourself and know what you wanted to do and, and you know i talked with someone uh with kim allen about the idea of the gradient ascent right like so it's a slow moving thing and if you know the peak you're reaching it kind of allows you to take the opportunities as they come and make the most of them and I mean, I, I don't know your exact situation, but that's kind of when I think of what I know about your life, it seems like that, right? You are very open to opportunity and like um, 
So, so you know, the first big thing, it's, from my point of view, was you moved to Peace River because there was an opportunity there. Can you tell us a bit about that opportunity? What led you to Peace River? Well, part of it was money. Um, yeah. I wouldn't say that I'm particularly monetarily motivated, but it was I was living and working here at a retail job, and I was interning at a radio station a few times a week. Okay. And it was just that it was just interning. They weren't paying me. Mm. And then I said, listen, I've been at this station for, I don't know. I think it would have been close to nine months at that point. I said, I can't stay here any longer Yeah, because it's great experience, but you're not paying me. And I don't see any possibility of me getting into a paying job here. Yeah. So they, in a kind of a roundabout way, put me in an at risk youth group so that the government could subsidize me working <laughs> at the station. Oh, so wow. they were they, they were like, well, we don't have the money to pay you, but hey, let's get the government to pay you to work here. <laughs> wow, yeah. Yeah. So I did that for it was a 3-month program and that kind of helped a bit. I mean, I was getting some money from it, which was which was good. And yeah. then a friend from college actually, he had moved out to Peace River at the beginning of I think it would have been 2014, uh, right in January. And within two, three weeks of him getting there, he called me up and he said, hey, Tyler, uh, I'm a creative writer at a couple stations up in Peace River. There's an opportunity for you here. I can put in a good word. And it was just me thinking, okay, I've never moved away from home. I didn't live away from home for school. Yeah, I would have been 21 at this point. So I figured there's nothing stopping me. And at in college, they told you, listen, chances are very slim in radio that you can start in Toronto and continue in Toronto. You kind of have to move away and work your way back to the big city. Yeah, that's what I've heard for kind of like news and stuff as well. You're not going to be an anchor or a newsman in, in one of the major cities. Absolutely. So I've had friends who have started in little small places and worked their way in Alberta closer and closer to Edmonton or to Calgary. Yeah. Um, somebody that I worked with in Peace River is now an, a reporter in Ottawa with CTV. So oh, wow. that that's kind of, you have to be uh, nomadic and willing to move for your craft. Mm -hmm. So I was in Peace River for about 14 months and I, I loved it. It was a, a quiet town. Um, the locals were very friendly. There was a surprising number of Southern Ontarian people. Yeah. But I was able to, to fill my free time with a lot of stuff, a lot of social events, community events. And I enjoyed the work, but I wanted more in terms of exploration. Yeah. So what I ended up doing is I ended up um, looking and doing a bit of research to see what countries were out there, what countries I could do a visa in. Yeah. Before we get to the other countries, I want to kind of ask about the the considerations you had before you moved to Peace River because you know I have friends I, I recently moved to Waterloo and I have friends who are amazed that I would want to not live in Toronto like there's nothing to do in anywhere other than Toronto right and I'm in Kitchener Waterloo which is still pretty big and but there is this definitely millennial mindset around like I need to live in one of the big cities that's where everything is and that kind of thing so like I'm interested you moved to yeah a town of like it's not even like you moved home to a town. You moved to some random town of 10,000 people. So, like, what were your considerations? Like, how did you come to say, yeah, this is the right thing? Or it was just, there's a job, let's do it? 
yeah, that's essentially what it was. It was a job and it was a paid opportunity. I had had one or two other interviews out West as well mm-hmm. and they didn't pan out. So this was what came through and it's what I jumped on it. And so what and, do you, like, I, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's going on with my, my other friends and, and, you know, the millennials generally, because, you know, you figured out what you liked and you found an opportunity related to that and you did whatever you needed to do and to to pursue that and i have so many other people who kind of like they're they're planning their life around the fact they want to live in toronto more than anything else or things like that right so it's like they they force themselves into a job they don't like so they can afford a place they're not happy with but they're in toronto at least or something like that um and they they don't really know why they're doing anything they're doing it seems yeah, I feel like it's the underlying kind of need to you kind of need to have affirmation from the people around you and mm-hmm. I feel like if you know I were to say oh I'm moving to Thunder Bay people would be like why? Yeah. You know? And they'd ask me all these questions and say oh I'm moving for a job. Oh, okay, but you're coming back, right? Yeah. So I think that these people are they're more interested in appeasing everybody in, around them than appeasing themselves. Mm, yeah. And with that, they may, they may need to, to move away for work, but they're stubborn and they're saying, listen, no, I'm going to start in Toronto and I'm going to work my way up in Toronto. Yeah. So I think that a lot of people are, maybe they're not getting the big picture. Maybe they're just too stubborn. Maybe they don't, want to move away maybe they can't move away there's so many different variables Mm -hmm. but i think that um it's probably family and societal pressure to be honest yeah and and so you you just you know don't listen to that which is pretty powerful in itself and i mean i that's i know you'll be successful because of that that's like the main thing is if if people just listen to themselves they'll they'll figure it out um, I don't always, you know, sometimes I kind of have to bow to, to some pressures, but I, yeah. I try to be honest with myself and how I'm feeling, but I, you're, you're right. Like you mentioned it earlier on, I am very open to opportunity. Yeah. The and variety of different things that I do irons in the fire, you know, being true, fully true to yourself is also changing when you feel you should right so it's not being like stubborn and purposely not shifting when some situation requests or requires it right exactly i was watching a podcast you know who bobby lee is i think so yeah he's a comedian he used to be on mad tv yeah so he has a podcast called tiger belly and he had craig ferguson on you know who he is right yeah uh late night show and he struggled with um substance abuse for years and years and he's been clean for ages yeah and one thing he said really resonated with me in that he said nothing is going to change if nothing changes <laughs> so it's almost identical to the um insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results right yeah. so if you're in a rut if something's going wrong don't keep digging that hole yeah you know make a change so I, I guess I'll, I'll wait to, to get to where I am now. Yeah. Um, we'll kind of work chronologically through, but, um, yeah, I mean, I was happy in Peace River, but 
I was looking around and seeing that a lot of my other coworkers, either they had been there for five years and were probably going to be lifers or they just got there and were just passing through. Yeah. So I kind of lumped myself into the passing through group. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the way, you know, in any place you have to really see who's been there a long time. And is that the kind of lifestyle you want to be able to have? Right. Um, and so that makes sense. And so, okay. So you, you followed a job to peace river town of 10,000 people in some random corner of Alberta or middle of Alberta. I'm not sure. And what was it like living in? Like, I don't really know many people who've lived in such a small town, especially in what I would consider like rural Alberta. Um, you know, what are the highlights and lowlights of that kind of uh, place? Well, the nature, um, a big highlight was the lack of traffic. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have a car, so I walked everywhere. Mm -hmm. But there were, I think there were three grocery stores, you know, two gyms, maybe a dozen, 18 restaurants. Yeah. Two or three bars. So it, it was definitely small, but people made the best out of it yeah. so because you're up there you're probably you're getting paid a bit more northern living expenses stuff like that uh so people were willing to to do the things that were there in town mm -hmm. so a few months into it by the time i kind of really got going you know i played frisbee sunday and wednesday nights monday night i was playing volleyball tuesday was bowling thursday was something else friday was you know, karaoke. So yeah. I filled my time with what was available and I didn't spend a lot of time, you know, just sitting in my room. I had moments where I did and that was kind of depressing. I had a whole week kind of there when I was, I'd been there for a few months and I literally was just contemplating my mortality for like a week straight. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of like a, well, what if I do this? Well, if I do this thing, then that's going to happen. So I know that's predictable. And yeah. I was in this kind of loop of like, I felt like I was kind of spectating my life yeah and then i kind of snapped out of it but that was an odd experience yeah but on, on the whole i i really you know enjoyed my time there the people were great uh it got really cold in the winter but mm. it was beautiful in the summer and yeah it was a great experience that's good to hear and it's like you know it it surprises and impresses me i guess again that you know you could fill your stuff your yourself so thoroughly and i i mean people there do generally because I, you know, I picture most of my peers in kind of the GTA and they say they're in the GTA because there's so much more to do, but they don't really do much of it. Right. It's like it's the options are there and they like to have the options, but then they still just kind of, you know, don't actively yeah. engage with it. And then like the idea of having 12 to 18 restaurants, I, I know people who'd be like, that's not even enough Italian restaurants. Right. Um, yeah. So it's I just think... a different type of life mm -hmm. completely right and but looking at peace river it was almost like the equivalent of you're on an island why leave the island get in your boat and travel to the mainland when yeah. you can just stay on the island so it was proximity so yeah. all this stuff was close i walked to everything i didn't have a car i would occasionally take a taxi to the other side of the river but it was usually just oh you know 10 minute walk to the bowling alley or 15 minute walk to the gym yeah and it's definitely just like living at it. I'm recently kind of like got rid of my car. And so it's just like a very different mentality, right? Like I walk places now. Occasionally I'll take a bus. But so it's like I just have to make do and be content with what I can reach now versus 
you know, so I don't want to go more than an hour out of my way. Whereas before an hour was much bigger, right? When I was driving places. And so it's just kind of like shifting your perspective. Yeah. Your your circle shrinks basically. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I guess so many people seem to have a fear of that, uh, a fear of having a smaller circle. I know. And it's part of it is, well, I'm going to move downtown. I'm going to have this great time. I'm going to be closer to all these things. And you still don't go to them. Yeah. We're creatures of habit, right? If we're going to, if we're, if we spend our time, you know, watching Netflix in our rooms, we move somewhere else, it, it might not change. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I, I moved to, I was definitely following the typical path, right? Like, oh, I needed to move out. So I got a place downtown, Queen West, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, I still only really explored like a couple of blocks, right? So it's really like a, a half hour walk from my house. It's just like, what does that happen to be? So like, you know, it's some shops. Okay. But then I just walk past the same shops every day. Or, you know, now I'm on a path. So I have like trees. And so it's less stimulating, but it's calming, right? So it's all just kind of like what environment to plop in. Right. And you mentioned that you find strength in nature, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. So that seemed like the right move for you too. Yeah. There is something to be said. Like I do miss sometimes having like an, an let's call it exciting walk or an, like a, a stimulating walk, right? Um, there's a lot more to look at um, walking through Queen West, you know, Queen Street. Um, so it's, it's a very different vibe. And it's like, you know, just what do you want your daily, like what do you want your baseline to be, I guess? Yeah, like I love walking around downtown Toronto, just people watching and seeing what the city has to offer. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it was very peaceful and relaxing walking down the sidewalk in barren ass Peace River. Yeah, like I definitely, you know, I'd say like if once a month I visited Toronto and, you know, spent a day walking around exploring the city, that would be enough for me. But I much prefer to like walk out of my house and have a street that like five cars are driving on rather than 6,000 or whatever. Exactly. And the number of times I sit in traffic and think I hate traffic Mm -hmm. is ridiculous. Yeah, definitely. Um, Okay, so so you went and you were in Peace River for a year and a bit, a year and a half, and then you you moved across the world. So again, was that just an easy decision and what led to it? And yeah, what was that all about? Well, part of it was, I think I had mentioned that I wanted to be one of those transient people in Peace River. I didn't want to set down my yeah. tent and, you know, hammer it into the ground there. Did you so, set a hard deadline? Like, I'm not going to be here more than three years or something like that? No, I didn't. It just happened kind of naturally. My mm-hmm. coworker, my buddy who got me out there, he was planning to leave. And we had a lease that was coming up. And so I figured if he's leaving, one, I'd have to find a new um roommate yeah two i kind of want to be getting ready to leave yeah and then in terms of my timeline i figured i'd go home for you know four five months and then i would do my thing so i'd spend a summer in toronto yeah and then go abroad so timing wise it worked out but i didn't have a hard deadline okay and so yeah so you moved back to toronto for a bit yeah so i was back in toronto for the summer i think i got back beginning of april and then i left for australia in september okay and what led you to australia 
part of it was I did my research in the different countries that I had interest in going to. So I looked at a few things. Is English the first language? Is it easy to get around there? Uh, how much is the visa? Am I able to work there? And one of my coworkers had actually spent a couple of years in Australia and had met someone and brought him back to Canada. And she had great things to say about Australia. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened as well that my dad has a roommate that he lived with, you know, 50 years ago yeah. who is from Australia and was back there. Okay. So I didn't go in completely blind. I had a contact there and he mm -hmm. was kind of my landing base. Yep. And so, excuse me, once I ended up getting over there, I spent a few months in Brisbane and jumping on opportunities and being open really helped me there Yeah. because I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. The gentleman that I was living with, he ended up connecting me with a friend that did a couple of days of painting, actually, you know, interior painting to make some money. And then I was also working with... Um, mainly just painting and then i got into ultimate frisbee and from there somebody in the community was looking for workers at a warehouse so that really kind of helped me out and i ended up working there for a period and then i moved elsewhere to do my farm work i needed to do three months of farm work to get a second year visa okay so i had to do that but ultimately i was very open to moving wherever and just exploring new uh, places meeting new people and I would say that I enjoy even the first couple of months of things. It seems that that's kind of my my mentality. If I pick something up, I'm usually a quick-ish learner, and I'm relatively good at it to start. And then I kind of uh, plateau early. Yeah. So that is my life. So I enjoy beginnings quite a bit, I think. So I'm wondering if, you know, I was fairly similar. Like I really like starting things and it's exciting and I can pick it up and then I kind of can get bored quite quickly. Um, do you find that it causes any trouble, uh, you know, with longevity and, and staying committed to anything? Um, yes and no. I think it depends on where the accountability lies. So if I am accountable for my own actions only and other people aren't relying on what I do, I tend to drop things quicker. Yeah. But if there's somebody else involved or multiple other people involved, I usually kind of stick through. Okay. That's a good, yeah, I guess that's a really good way to balance it out. Um, yeah. So that's why I was able to do all the things that I did when I was traveling because I was traveling by myself. So I didn't have to answer to anybody else. Yeah. I, I definitely am an advocate for tra solo traveling now. Um, it's it's quite the experience. Uh, definitely different than even having one person you're traveling with. Oh, absolutely. You're forced way out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And so, it, I mean, it seems to me again that, um, you know, the more open someone is to opportunity, the more just amazed you are by the amount of opportunities actually available. And so you kind of just... Were your whole two years in Australia kind of just seeing what was available and, and you know, just following, you know, what, what came about? Um, yes, I would say that I didn't have a super strict schedule. I just knew that the one thing I wanted to do in my first year in Australia was work long enough to be able to apply for a second year. Yeah. 
So in terms of what ended up happening, I think I was in Brisbane from September to January. I was in Adelaide for February till about maybe March. Went, my parents came over in April and spent some time with them and my sister. And then I did South Korea and Philippines. Then went back to Brisbane and kind of got settled back in Australia and finished the rest of my farm work. And then fast forward again to September. And that's when I went to Southeast Asia and I met up with you and the gang. Mm-hmm. And and so how is the farm work? Because that's, again, something that just like the average person I know has no interest and in, like, you know, that's that's peasant work, right? Why would I'm a university educated person or, or a college educated person? Why should I work on a farm? What was it like? Well, that's the thing that when you're traveling and when you're living the backpacker backpacker life, you need to pull your head right out of your ass yeah. and say, listen, like I am, I am a guest in this country. I am bottom of the totem pole, Yeah, you know? And so it was interesting because I met a lot of other backpackers and I didn't work with hardly any Australians. It was always, you know, Brits, um, a couple Kiwis, but mainly Brits, Americans, Canadians, and then uh, Southeast Asians. Okay. And so I did essentially what I had to do. I just had, I jumped on the first couple opportunities for farm work and I, some interesting stories came of that. You know, I worked, I picked strawberries for two and a half months. I picked 2.2 metric tons. So that's <laughs> a, a lot, lot of, of kilograms. Yeah, exactly. 2,200 kilograms. And so that was, yeah, that was an experience. And yeah. then, I only had X number of days, I think like 17 more days I had to do. So when I got back from uh, Philippines and South Korea, I jumped on another opportunity where I ended up doing spring onions, broccoli, um, cauliflower, cabbage, and one other vegetable. I don't remember. Oh, yeah. tomatoes. That's fruit. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and so you're rubbing shoulders with people who are kind of in the same cast as you, right? They're in a different country. They are working, you know, week to week to be able to afford a couple drinks at the end of the week or, you know, the rent. And everybody is kind of on the same wavelength. There's nobody who's saying like, oh, I'm too good for this. I'm too good yeah. for that. I did run into a couple of people who were kind of spoiled and they did not last. Yeah. So it's amazing to see what people's characters are, what they're made of when they're, you know, in the middle of a strawberry field and, the difference between picking 30 kilograms and picking 60 kilograms is 50, 60 bucks a day, you know? Yeah. Okay. And so you, did you enjoy it? I enjoyed the people. I wouldn't say that I enjoyed the work necessarily. I enjoyed the people. And because of the people, I think I put up with the work Mm -hmm. and it was just ticking off days. You know, it was like, okay, only 89 days left, only 88 days left. Mm. And, Picking the variety of veggies, the last kind of chunk, uh, there were a few times where, well, multiple times, actually, we would show up at a farm and we would be the, essentially, we'd be like the white, the white colonists coming in and stealing work from the, um, the locals or the immigrants from the uh, surrounding uh, countries. Yeah. So we walked in, you know, these kids, these teenagers, young adults, here to get our days and we don't necessarily give a shit about how much money we're making 
where these other people are there grinding and working for a living, you know? Yeah. So, for example, there was a day I worked two and a half hours. I picked a box and a half of spring onions and the guy's like, great, you can go home. I'll sign you off your day. And I'm like, sweet. Whereas somebody from Papua New Guinea is there. They smash out like 10, 12 boxes a day and they get 1100 bucks a week, you know? Yeah. So it's really what you were there for. And I was lucky to go over with savings. So I didn't have to um, be counting my pennies when I was there. I was able to say, great, another day done. Once I'm done, I'm out of here. Yeah. Would you recommend it to people? Like, is it, you know, I know people who've tree planted, like, would you recommend doing physical labor to the average person who maybe never will or never has? Absolutely. I think that it humbles you. It makes you realize all of the different components to the world. You know, it, it kind of give, gave me a bit of a different insight to walking through the produce section, right? Mm-hmm. You realize where this stuff is coming from. Yeah. And I'm kind of more aware of the fact I, I never would have thought of any of the things that I came into contact with on those farms because the only time I've ever been to a farm before was going to, I don't know, what was it, Chudley's or whatever with a class probably one time picking apples and then yeah, yeah. Time somewhere else picking, you know, 50 strawberries in a strawberry patch. Yeah. Very different than 2.2 metric tons, I guess. <laughs> oh, quite different. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so where did you go from Australia? So Australia was kind of like a, a work work for pleasure type thing, right? Like you wanted to do go there and see what, what was up, but it wasn't like any specific purpose. It was just where, where yeah. life took you. There were a few road trips that I went on within Australia. Yeah. But it was also a good kind of hub to get into Asia. Mm-hmm. So I did South Korea and the Philippines the first year and then later that year i jumped over to thailand and malaysia vietnam cambodia and then back to back home for christmas and then back to australia okay and so you you definitely had a good like base to travel and enjoy yourself as well um and so then you move you moved to thailand after that yes yeah so the first time we were in Thailand, it was interesting because the king passed away. Oh, yeah. He had been the reigning monarch for 70 years. So it was interesting to come back to the 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 country a year after and see how it was similar and how it was different. And What, what were I, some of those things you noticed? Well, it was coming up on the one-year anniversary, actually. So a lot of the very... Um, not patriotic, but the people that were, you know, so infatuated and in love with the king, mm-hmm. they were still wearing black and muted colors, yeah. you know, almost a year after his passing because it was customary. Mm-hmm. And so these people grew up with this king, this figurehead, Their doing entire what lives. they thought exactly all of these great things for the country. And it was like, you know, Jesus or God had died, right? Mm-hmm. And so the last few days of my uh i did a teaching program there for about three weeks and that was interesting because that was a hundred plus young adults from all over the world predominantly canada the uk the us and south america Mm -hmm. but a couple other you know uh sprinkled in here and there and we came into thailand and we're thinking oh you know we're gonna learn how to teach but we're also gonna have a good time and party and 
excuse me, the locals were all kind of like, you got to, you got to tone it down a bit there, bud. You know, we're still mourning. Oh, wow. Yeah. So once the year passed, though, things kind of returned to somewhat normal, though Thailand is still a conservative-ish country. Mm -hmm. So you can't, they don't like PDA, you know, try to stay away from, I guess, public sex acts, but I I, I did, so I was okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. And so you, you went there. What led you to decide to teach in Thailand? Part of it was when I went to Asia the first time, I ran into some teachers who really enjoyed their experience. Mm-hmm. Some of them went to school in their home countries to teach and then were kind of jumping over to Asia to get some experience, but also be able to explore the country. Yeah. So I took it kind of as a way to support myself as I explored Thailand. But funnily enough, I didn't do heaps of exploring in my time teaching because it was a relatively strict schedule. It was essentially, I don't know that I had more than a couple days off in the three, four months that I was there apart from the weekends. Yeah. But I had to go into Laos to get an extended visa or sorry to redo my visa. And I was just exploring the the town that I was in and then no more than three, four hours outside of that. Mm -hmm. And that was the town that I lived in rural, in rural Thailand was bigger than peace river, but still (laughs) relatively small. Yeah. And so I was one of maybe if I had to guess one of 15 foreigners in the town. Yeah. So apart from my very proficient students, I taught grades nine to 12. Apart from the proficient students there and some of the teachers, you know, I had to learn basic Thai to communicate with people. And so was that at all an isolating experience to only have, you know, a handful or a dozen people that you were actually able to engage with, you know, for pleasure, let's say? It was. I kind of had to interact with people that if I had a choice, I potentially wouldn't on a regular basis. Yeah. So it was kind of making do with what I had. Um, mm-hmm. I got lucky in that my neighbor who lived in the house next to me and who taught at the same school as me was actually from Windsor. Okay, so wow. I've I've met up with her a couple times since I've been back in Canada and she's been back. So that was really nice because we were able to to learn and experience things at the same pace at the same time. We yeah. rented a, a motorbike together and did a lot of our exploring together. That's nice. So, Yeah, so it was nice to have somebody there. I think doing that alone would have been much harder. I would have been able to kind of be pushed out of my comfort zone more, but she is just like ridiculously outgoing. So I don't know, you know me, the listeners mm. may not know me at all, but you would say that I'm pretty outgoing, right? Definitely, yeah. So there were plenty of times where I was like, like, shit, Gabby, you want to do that thing? <laughs> so she was making me go out even further out of my comfort zone, right? Yeah. Whether it's, you know, walking with my laundry to the convenience store and a couple Thai guys are drinking at like 10 in the morning on a Saturday. They just hold out a drink to me. They're like, come on, you know, drink. But they didn't say it in English. They just yeah. kind of pointed the drink. And then three hours later, I'm at his house doing karaoke. Yeah. Because Gabby's like, let's go do karaoke. So. You kind of have to be willing to, you're already out of your comfort zone. You're already in that different country. So why are you then reverting? Yeah. Why are you then reverting to, oh, I'm going to stay inside and watch Netflix. I'm going to stay inside and, 
you know, play video games. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so throughout all of this, you know, in, in Australia and in Thailand, did you ever have any, like, are you, are you someone who's just able to kind of stay present the whole time? Or did you have these ideas of maybe I should, you know, get, go back and get a job or even, you know, you wanted to do voice work and and you weren't for a couple of years or it's like, that's, you know, eventually I'll do what I, when I want to do that, I'll do that. But right now I'm doing this. Yeah. I would say that was more or less what was going through my mind. You know, enjoy this time here because once I go back, I'll probably, you know, be back in Toronto and Canada for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, apart from, you know, maybe a week or two here or there somewhere else. Yeah. But I knew that I wanted to make the most of the, my experience. So I was kind of putting it to the back of my head. When I go back, I'll deal with it then kind of thing. Okay. And so... Yeah, so, Go ahead. I was just going to say, so coming back, I definitely had a period of time where I was like, well, shit, you know, I was trying to compare myself, my, you know, post two and a half years living abroad self to the people who never left and were already in their careers and you know doing their masters and stuff like that yeah and how is that comparison oh oh bad yeah bad because i mean for my self-esteem especially because i'm thinking obviously there's no way that i can compare myself and where i was in my career to these people but uh, you know it was hard not to do that because mm -hmm. i didn't have I had very few other people in the same boat as me. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that I was on kind of the same the same par with were the people who were just leaving high school, right? Yeah. And I'm essentially eight, seven, eight years older than those kids. So I have, you know, a lot more experience in terms of lived experience, but I felt like I was underexperienced in terms of career and professional experience. And so how how long did that kind of last, I guess? Um, I would say that it hasn't fully worn off in that I don't have, you know, a full-time nine-to-five uh, job. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want, mind you. So there are other people that in, you know, the acting, in the, the voice acting world where you're not going to have a nine-to-five. You know, you may have a part-time to help supplement income. But as a voice actor, as an actor, you spend most of your career unemployed, you know, just work a job here that lasts a couple months, work a job there. So I've become a bit more accustomed to not comparing myself to all my nine to five friends. Yeah, that's that makes sense. Before we move forward, I want to ask how what you know, what are some highlights and lowlights of teaching English in Thailand? Right. You did that for a while, teaching these kids English. What was it like? Like. Not many people do that. Well, to paint a brief picture, I had a very different experience than a lot of the other people will because I chose a rural part of Thailand. It was, you know, incredibly rural. We didn't have more than a couple grocery stores. We were 45 minutes from the closest airport. Um, and again, relatively small town. Mm -hmm. So in, in doing that, I kind of passed up the proficiency of kids so i was expecting less proficient kids but kind of more almost down to earth kids yeah because i heard the kids in bangkok were real dicks because <laughs> they're you know city kids right yeah so to to kind of paint the picture i spent about 
20 hours a week in class. The rest was, you know, in the teacher's lounge doing prep and whatever else marking. But I had close to, I don't think I fully tallied it up, but I had between five and 550 students. Holy, that's a whole school. And the biggest, yeah. Well, the whole school was, I think, 3,200. Wow. So imagine the high school we went to, 550 is half the school, right? Yeah. So grades nine, I had grade nine, basically every class of grade nine, I taught them English. And then I had a gifted class in grade 10, a gifted class in grade 11, and then uh, a standard class in grade 12. Yeah. And so because of how thinly the foreign teachers were stretched out, I would see of those 550, I would say I saw 450 of them, maybe, yeah, about four to 450 of them once a week for maybe 50 minutes assuming they all came in on time and left once after the bell rang. Mm -hmm. So it was really challenging to connect with them. And I thought for a long period, I had anxiety the entire time I was there because coming from, you know, the Canadian school system, you want to see results. And so I was comparing myself to, you know, the French teachers that we had in school Mm -hmm. and picturing how, I don't know if you remember, but I think in grade nine, you were in my French class with Miss Casado, right? Yep. So do you remember that for a short period of time, she tried to teach the class entirely in French? I do not remember that. Well, I believe she tried to do that, and she realized very quickly that was not going to work yeah. because we just weren't proficient in French. So she was teaching it in English with translations. Yeah. So now that was me in Thailand, right? I was teaching I was teaching in the language the kids were supposed to learn but they didn't know that language. Yeah. And I didn't have the benefit of knowing their language. Mm-hmm. So there was this constant kind of almost battle where I'm trying to figure out if they understand me. But I think in most classes there was at least one student who was able to absorb what I was teaching and then turn around and essentially teach the rest of the class what was happening. Yeah. So the expectations were really low. I was expected to teach them, you know, maybe 10 words a class. And so say it was hobbies. You know, I would walk around with a picture of a basketball and I would point at it and I would go basketball. Yeah. And I would so spend, it's really like kind of an elementary level. Yeah. Education. Even though they're great, they're, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. Yeah. So I would go around, do that, do that for the whole class, go around to individual kids hold the picture in front of them and just wait. And they would say, basketball, yeah. basketball. And I, it was, you know, it was like hitting yourself over the head. Yeah. Whereas with the more proficient kids, I was able to really kind of enjoy the experience because I was able to play games with them. They knew enough of the language that I could do more interesting things. Yeah. And it was amazing once I got kind of the whole, um, I'm here to teach thing mentality kind of out of my head. I'm like, I'm here, I'm here to speak English. Yeah. Right. I'm not a trained teacher. I took the course, the three week course, but this isn't my career. So I'm here to speak English. I'm here to make this enjoyable for them. So more often than not, I would play games. And it was funny to see how competitive these kids were and how they they thought I was an idiot. They honestly <laughs> did at times. They were yeah. trying to sneak stuff past me. I was playing a game with them where I would write a word on the board 
the word was English. So they yeah. were split into groups and I pointed at one and I kind of got across that they needed to pick a word in their group that started with each letter of that word. Yeah. So if it was English, they had to pick the, the longest word they could that started with E. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, the smart kids are thinking, oh, oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. And you know, elephant, or maybe they would say Ecuador. And then the kids who are less proficient are like sneaking their phones and stuff or trying to cheat. And I'm trying to handle a class of 50 kids. Right. So I can't look around all the time. Yeah. And so one of my favorite moments, I get to a kid that I actually play basketball with outside of the school and I'm on H and I'm looking at his group and he gives me the biggest smile. He opens his notebook. He wrote a word down. And for H, he looks at me and he says, habitual junk. And I look <laughs> down at the word that he had written down and it was two words. He had written down habitual drunkard. <laughs> and this is a nine year old, a grade nine kid. And so I'm thinking, you're full of shit. You are yeah. so full of shit, dude. There's no way you know that word. Yeah. And he's kind of like sheepishly grinning. He's like, yeah, you got me. Yeah. That's funny. You just... Yeah. So it was, a, it was a good experience once, you know, I realized there are 550 teenagers, right? They're not, not just students. Yeah. They have lives outside of school. I saw a lot of them outside of the school. And that was the benefit of living in a small town is that I, I rubbed shoulders with them in the market, you know, on the basketball court. So I was able to see how they lived as well. That mm -hmm. wouldn't have happened if I was in Bangkok or a bigger city. Yeah. And it was also like your life would have just had other things going on as well. So it's not even like you wouldn't have bumped into them, but you'd be busy doing, doing things rather than just like being in the city you're in. Exactly. I'd be at the mall or I'd be, you know, watching a movie. Whereas in the town that I lived in, Takan Pan. I, I, you know, from seven to nine or seven to 10, most nights I would be in front of the convenience store having beers with the local moms. Yeah. So that was very different. And I'd learned bits and pieces of Thai and I would try to teach them bits and pieces of English. One of the times we laughed incredibly hard, there was a foreigner named Troy in our, in our town and he'd been there for longer. So he knew the, the women and I was trying to teach one of the women what there was a, a metal platter and she kind of pointed at it. And I said, Trey. Yeah. And she said, toy. And she thought it was named after Troy. <laughs> so I thought that was hilarious. She was pointing at it and she's yelling, Troy, Troy, Troy. And she was having the time of her life. Yeah. And it was so funny. Just once we were able to kind of realize that, you know, we weren't going to be able to communicate with proficient you know with actual sentences and it was just words here and there um and i ended up accidentally giving myself a, an animal nickname where um <laughs> they had some food out and they were trying to to point out what the food was and it was pork rinds or something so they were saying that in thai and i didn't really understand and they said oot oot and interestingly enough you would say a pig says oink oink right yeah so in, in Thailand, they would say a pig says oot oot. Okay. And so I didn't register that. They're just saying oot oot. And I'm thinking that's the name of the dish, right? Yeah. So I'm like, oh, oot oot, great. You know, I take yeah. it, oot oot oot, yeah. And they're pissing themselves laughing because I'm <laughs> pointing like a pig. Yeah. So it got to the point where I'd be walking down towards the store and they'd be like, oot oot. Yeah. And I'd be like, oot oot. So it was, yeah. it was hilarious. It was so funny. 
that's really funny and it's like that type of experience just like is an incredible experience and it's just not something that happens when you don't have these other what people would call boundaries in the way right but like it's such a human like real experience exactly and getting to the point where i was communicating with them on a daily basis you know if i was on my way to school i'd wave at them coming home i'd wave at them if i didn't get to that point i would have had such a different time i would have just been coming right home from school just staying in my house until the morning and i would have had yeah not nearly as a fulfilling experience yeah definitely um what so what are your key takeaways from i don't know your your experience abroad generally right like cuz it's something that not that many people have and and the diversity of experience that you had so if you could you know tell yourself or tell me or someone you know what you got out of it it's not the easiest question but what what comes to mind um probably to humble yourself and be okay with being a different person from who you are at home not to say change yourself on purpose mm-hmm. but if you're not going to eat you know a spider at a restaurant at home be okay to eat a spider <laughs> at a bus stop in Cambodia yeah they don't taste that bad trust me but I don't know, mine tasted pretty bad <laughs> <laughs> but uh no i would say definitely humble yourself and realize that when it comes down to it you know you're a visitor in this country these people have potentially lived there their whole lives and for you to come in and say shit like under your breath you know these guys don't speak english like oh they 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 sound so funny oh hello hello you yeah. know and it's like take your head out of your ass and realize that these are their lives you know you're inserting yourself into their life and you need to accept some things that you may not want to accept mm-hmm. you know I- and a lot of it in southeast asia especially was um, becoming accustomed to their to the Thai time, right? Where nothing started on time. Yeah. And for the first couple of weeks, I'm like, this is ridiculous. You know, it's 8.30, no one's here. Whereas after a couple of months after that, I'm like, yeah, I'll get there when I get there, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's a really good piece of advice, I guess, because so many people, when they go abroad, and I mean, it frustrated me quite a bit, uh, you know, in some of my interactions, but they they... Yeah, it's their world now. Like wherever they, wherever this expat travels or whatever, they think the world should bend to them, and they get so frustrated that no one speaks English. And it's like you're in Thailand. Why are you mad? People aren't speaking English, and like that kind of thing. So to have that mindset is um, refreshing, I guess. Yeah, the comedian Patrice O'Neill, uh, now deceased, unfortunately, he mm. had a good bit about. Um, how so many Americans, mind you, this was like 10 years ago, this bit, yeah. but how so many Americans, they go to other countries and they make fun of the locals, you know, because they're not Americanized, you know? Yeah. Oh, you don't speak English. This is, and you're thinking, oh, you're in Mexico, you know, you're in Guadalajara, wherever. But uh, yeah, talking about the expats and, and whatnot, you would get expat hubs where, you know, maybe I would need, I wanted Tex-Mex. So I would go down to, uh, where I knew that I could find Tex-Mex. And you look at some of the people that we travel with in Asia too, I'm not going to name any names, but they would be more likely to eat pizza than a local dish. Yeah, like consistently. Yeah, and, absolutely. And it's, yeah, I, I had the same idea with like people who in those hubs, they just like 
party with each other and hang out with each other and it's really like why are you here then it it didn't really make sense to me to and i i only i like was partially disengaged from that you know i stayed in big cities only and that kind of stuff but it really surprised me how pe- some people just were in their bubble in whatever country they went to right and playing devil's advocate they are out of their bubble and that they're in a different country but they probably don't feel comfortable enough straying away from too far so i found a lot of people you know if i'm canadian and i meet another canadian I'm automatically going to mesh with them because they have so much in common, right? Yeah. And so that's just the way things are. Whereas if I'm in a room with, you know, a German and uh, a Dutch person and a Brit, we have, I have very little in common with them. Yeah, I'm in the Commonwealth with the Brit, but, you know, that's about it. So you're kind of forced out of your bubble and you're forced to experience new things. That's fair, but it's definitely a different degree of bubble let's say and i guess it's everyone has their own comfort level right and so if you're going to you know you're going to s21 the big air-conditioned mall in bangkok with them yeah you're getting a taste of of um a different culture but you're still walking past you know a jugo juice or a mrs pretzels or whatever yeah whereas you could be you know three streets over sampling street meat or street food yeah street meat sounded wrong but you get what i'm saying yeah definitely all right. Well, yeah, it's really I, I always enjoy, you know, diving in more with you on, on this kind of stuff. And and so I want to I, I do thank you for sharing it. And, but I want to kind of shift gears completely into the other thing that um, I wanted to talk about. And I mean, part of it is just your openness to talk about things, right? Like you're one of the most open people I know. And in particular, when it comes to being on shows with me, right? Like you're I'm a pretty, uh, you know, open person willing to talk about anything and the only ever time the only times i ever like go oh i don't know about that is often when i'm with you and so i'm interested to kind of hear what your mindset is your mentality around you know being like honest publicly saying what's on your mind and and you know especially given the current like um you know we the current climate uh, of the internet and, and of potentially society at large. I, I kind of want to shift gears towards that. Right. Um, I think that I have a, an underlying kind of, I need everybody to like me kind of thing. So um, I wouldn't say that it's uh, pervasive in my entire life, but for the most part, if I meet somebody, I want us to have, you know, a good connection, good relationship, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I don't push boundaries too often. You know, I don't try to push buttons too much, but I like to banter. I like to have conversation and I'm willing to share more because I think ultimately it also lowers other people's guards and yeah. helps them to then share more and be more open. And so I found that that was a great tool of, you know, interacting with people and meeting with people abroad because they could be like, oh, whoa, like, I can't believe you told me that. But, oh, hey, maybe I'll tell him about this thing that happened. Yeah. And then you find that you're able to connect on a much greater level. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I definitely appreciate that in terms of your openness generally. Um, and it seems to me that, you know, I mean, I, you know, we've known each other a long time. So obviously we're pretty comfortable with each other. 
but there's some people who when they're being recorded they have this they they feel like they need to filter themselves more and you know the the thing that comes to mind for me is like the video we filmed and you're like you point you look at the camera and you go we're not racist i swear and like things like that where you <laughs> where it's like you know just being really abrupt like i i and so many people are are so much more scared than you are of of the world right now i guess or of of the the online world at least right but i think that most of the things that i say can't not not that they can't be taken out of context and be seen as bad but like i said i try not to push the envelope too much and that I'm really surprises aware... me for you to say that because I'd say you push the envelope more than almost anyone I know. <laughs> well, push the envelope <laughs> in, in certain directions. Like I'm aware of the medium that I'm using. So, for example, I've stopped swearing openly on Facebook. I did that a couple of years back. Okay. But it was once I realized that I had family members on Facebook. I'm not going to say the F word and whatever on yeah. somebody's wall or in a comment. Um, I'm still, you know, myself in Messenger or on WhatsApp or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, pushing the envelope in certain directions. Like I know there's di different ways I can take conversations, but I would say ultimately maybe politically and sexuality. I try not to to step too far out of the box unless I really know somebody. Yeah. But so I'm try. I can't remember the specific example, but you always seemed willing to like, cause I like thought games, right? And you, you always were one of the people I I've enjoyed playing the thought games with the most because you're also able to kind of like strategically push that envelope. And I've just been surprised. Um, you know, there, I, I can't think of any specific examples, but there was a couple of times where I like had a cringe and I'm like, I don't know if I can post this, which is rare for me. Right. And, and so, right. It's I mean, it's it's surprising me that to, to me that you don't view it that way, because it definitely you were highlighted above any of my other peers that I've recorded with as someone who was willing to kind of push that political that 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 sexual envelope um, in conversations. Right. But what I guess what I'm trying to get across is as soon as I put something out onto Facebook or onto the Internet. I know that anybody and everybody can see it. So, yeah, yeah I want to get myself across and maybe that's pushing the envelope in terms of I'm going to be silly instead of being, you know, business. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to make a joke here or there, but I'm not going to I'm not a comedian. I'm not trying to, you know, make some people uncomfortable while I'll make others laugh. Mm -hmm. So, I'm not going to say something to stir the pot just to stir the pot, if that makes sense. Okay. So, yeah, and I think, so. I mean, I guess most of the time, yeah, the stuff that you've said was more in the lens of, like, making me laugh or being a joke generally. And it's it's more that that line, you know, in the public sphere seems finer than ever, right? And so I guess, you know, that's something, like, how do you feel about that, about your jokes some people would be would be very remiss to make any jokes about, you know, sensitive topics these days. And you're not a comedian. You don't do it purposely. But, you know, we're very we are very comfortable in our conversation. So it just kind of kind of comes about more naturally if if we're talking about a, a specific subject. Right. Um, do you find you're just naturally less filtered um, than the average person or like I'm, I'm trying to do you get where I'm going kind of? I can yeah, I can see what you're what you're kind of dancing around. I would say that I 
not that I'm necessarily less filtered, but I'm more aware of wanting to say something because I think that it's appropriate or it's something that I want to say as opposed to being like, oh, well, if I say that, they might not like it and then this and then that. So there's definitely times where I've said stuff and people have been like, oh, that's not great. Yeah. And so I will adjust. And ultimately, I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. That's not my goal pretty much ever when I open my mouth. Yeah. Unless I'm with my close friends and I'm making a point to make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay. That's fair yeah, enough. So, yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, when when I am interacting with people, in person, I probably will be a little bit different, a little bit more, you know, whatever the case, whether it's pushing the envelope or, or what. But keep in mind, right, I, you know, I was on the radio. I was, you know, in the in the space of, of um, radio broadcasting. So I kind of had to filter myself in that sense because I could be talking to uh, a 12-year-old kid or a, an 80-year-old person. So I kind of made myself more aware of my audience and not knowing who my audience could be when I say the things, right? Mm-hmm. That's when, I'm, when we're having a conversation face-to-face, I know you're my audience, but as soon as we talk, um, through the mics, anybody could be listening. So I need to be aware of that and not make a, a joke that I know might not land well. I like I I believe you're saying that now, but it surprises me because that's not the impression I had gotten in the past. With the stuff that we've recorded, or the stuff that we've just talked about, the stuff we've recorded. I mean, definitely the stuff we talked about goes a little further, but yeah, like I still, I get like, maybe you're just have a, a, a slightly broader comfort level than I have. Um, but definitely. With, yeah. 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 No, that could, that could definitely be it. I could definitely have, I guess that's probably the right term, broader comfort level. I'm more okay with saying things that you may not think are, are, are necessarily okay. Right. And that's, you know, and that's what I'm wondering about is because, I have a pretty broad comfort level compared to most of my peers, right? Like I say things that I think are okay to say and that many other people question it. And you're the only person that consistently, uh, you know, makes me rethink not being broad enough. Mm-hmm. I think part of it, I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but part of it is I would say that I'm relatively grounded and I'm not one of those... Um, intellectuals yeah. that went to university for eight years, right? So I find that a lot of people who spend their time, you know, in books and online and not interacting with people then don't know how to interact with people. And yeah. I've worked in customer service for, you know, over a decade and I did all this traveling. So I'm able to do a relatively good job of reading the situation, reading the person uh, and recognizing where the line is yeah. and pushing right up to the line, but not, I, I will step over occasionally, but I try not to. Yeah. And I, th- I would agree. Like you definitely seem to be one of the people I know most comfortable with themselves. And so if you're comfortable with yourself, you're comfortable to speak honestly and, and know like you don't mean to offend people and people won't take it offensively. Um, but on the flip side, I think you also, you know, a lot of the people that I talk to that are more fearful, I guess, they seem to think that 
the way the internet responds to things is the way society responds to things. And you kind of have enough broad experience of different types of people, different communities to have a gauge on reality versus what the internet claims as reality. Exactly. I'd made a comment on um, a message board about a, a conversation. Somebody posted a picture of, I think it was like a sandwich board outside of a restaurant in Thailand. And it was something along the lines of, you know, your guests in this city, in this country, um, we may not be able to speak the best English. There's no reason you should make fun of us for that kind of thing. It was yeah. better worded. But in the comments, I said something like, also be aware of what you're saying to them. And the example I used was the phrase, me love you long time. Whereas I didn't know that it's from, um, shit, I don't remember the name of the movie. Um, shit, Full Metal Alchemist, I think. And that came out, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I don't know the reference from there. Mm -hmm. I know the reference from, I saw it happen, you know, tourists using it. Oh, me love you long time. Thank you. And they think it's an endearing kind of thing, but it's literally saying like, you know, come sleep over for the night and we'll have sex and I'll pay you for it. That's yeah. the rough translation. And so the comment I made was basically, you know, be aware if you're saying me love you long time, it's going to mean this. And like three people responded and they were like, you're an idiot. Like nobody thinks that. And <laughs> at first I'm like, holy shit, nobody thinks that. And then I think, no, wait a second. I saw it happen with my own eyes. These people are the people who are blind to this situation. They're not thinking past their own experience. Those people probably knew it from the movie and they're like, yeah, no one's going to make that mistake. And they're probably in their 30s and 40s. Whereas I saw 18 year old kids saying, me love you long time and thinking they were being nice. Right. Yeah. So you have to kind of take anything that happens on the Internet with a grain of salt because it's usually the vocal the vocal minority. Yeah, definitely. I would I would 100 percent agree with that. Um, and so I'm interested now to just kind of ask, what are, what are your thoughts on, you know, the state of the Internet right now and, and the way it is impacted or impacts our, our peers? Um, it's interesting because I don't use Twitter. Um, I use Facebook to some degree. I use Reddit and Instagram. And it seems that a lot of people are moving away from Facebook for different reasons. So I would say that most of the interacting I do on social media is you know, direct messaging. I'll comment on people's stuff and whatnot, but I try to have conversations with people outside of the public sphere, whether it's reaching out and saying like, hey, what are you up to? Or, hey, how, how's everything going? So I try not to have too many public conversations, Yeah, if that makes sense, because what I have to say isn't necessarily, it's not necessary for the public, right? I remember when Facebook first came out and I would post on somebody's wall, hey, how's it going? And then everybody can see our conversation, right? Yeah. So I would say that for social media, I, I try, I post stuff when I know that I want anybody and everybody in my friend group to be aware of this thing that I'm posting. Mm -hmm. But if I want a specific person to be aware of it, then I send it just to them. So, so I would, think that I've become you, kind of, sorry, go ahead. Would you say you're not particularly... Uh, engaged in the more social aspects of social media. It's more used as a like direct communication tool. Yeah. I mean, if I see something on social media that I don't agree with, or I feel that I could add input, I will. 
absolutely. But I'm not necessarily going out of my way and searching for those things. And I'm not trying to make those things happen too often with my own posts. I'll occasionally post stuff like um, I made a post after I'd went and seen a movie by myself. And somebody in my life had been like, well, you went and saw a movie by yourself, you loser. Mm-hmm. And then I posted a poll question, who thinks going to see a movie by yourself you know, is sad? And I was disappointed with how many people said yes. It wasn't many. It was about 10 people, though. And yeah. so I posed the question to them, you know, why is it sad? And a couple actually messaged me personally saying, well, not that I wouldn't do it, but, you know, I, my one and a half year old son, I watch all my movies with him. So I would be sad that I wasn't with him and I was by myself. Okay. And so I'm thinking, okay, interesting. I wouldn't have thought of it that way. Yeah. Um, whereas I'm just, I guess you use the word comfortable with myself and willing to, you know, sit at a restaurant by myself or sit in a movie theater by myself. And I sit at home watching movies by myself all the time. Why does it matter that I'm doing it in a public space, right? Yeah, definitely. And so yeah. um, I appreciate you coming on and sharing all of this with me. I, I look forward to you know having you on sometime in the future as well. Do you have any insights, last insights for, for me from uh, you know your, your time abroad? Your, like I do believe you're one of the most you know, just grounded, uh, comfortable people I know. And so it's always nice to be able to chat with you. So any any words of, of, of wisdom? Well, thank you. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate your opinion. Um, I try not to let other people's opinions really affect me, but um, <laughs> it's nice to know that you think that. And you have said that on multiple occasions. Uh, and I do appreciate that. And you are the type of person who um, I am always willing to help because I know that what you're doing is something that you're passionate about and it's something that you know can make a difference and thank you for not selling out I guess is probably the best term um I for not succumbing that. to yeah for not succumbing to the the nine to five because you think that you have to for kind of paving your own way so thank you for that thank um, you in terms of what i would say i guess final little nuggets for traveling um do it travel don't be afraid to do anything by yourself you shouldn't you should not turn something down because nobody else is doing it um humble yourself be aware that everybody is living their own life and what you do one of your decisions may kind of haunt you for the rest of your life if it's you shit yourself in public or something <laughs> those people are gonna see that they're gonna laugh and then they're gonna move the hell on yeah so just accept the fact that everybody in their own lives and you can make so many decisions on a regular basis that will improve your life um and then i guess the last thing i would say is just um doubling back on craig ferguson's comment nothing will change if nothing changes so if you're in a rut do something to change it, please. Go out there, be social, pick up a sport, um, try improv. Improv is amazing. Drop in improv. Use parts <laughs> of your brain that you don't normally use. Be creative. Draw a picture. Do anything. Go for a walk. Lift some weights. There's so many things you can do in this world outside of your comfort zone. Please, please step out of it. Just pick something and get started. And if you don't like it, shit, you don't like it. Move on and try something else. Don't just give up with all things. Yeah. Well, perfect. Thank you for for coming and hanging out. I, I really appreciate it, and I look forward to chatting again soon.
No problem. Thank you for having me and letting me rant for a while. <laughs> Thanks for everyone who tuned in. Catch you next time. Thank you.